You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money on this week before Valentine's Day, which in my house means it's time to head to the Chocolate Chalet in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and load up on dark chocolate nonpareils. Usually when I go there, I load up on half dark chocolate and half milk chocolate because I like the milk chocolate ones and my husband likes the dark chocolate ones. But since it's Valentine's Day and this is his gift, because we don't do big gifts on Valentine's Day, I will just get the ones that he likes and I will do my very best not to dig into them after he puts them into the freezer. Valentine's Day, by the way, has become such a big consumer holiday. I don't even think it was Christmas when I saw them loading the hearts and flowers and other items onto the shelves in the drugstores and the grocery stores. And if you are in the single and looking category, well, today you're in luck because we have Cupid's mathematician in the house, John Berger, who is my friend. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's an award-winning magazine writer. He's a contributor to Fortune magazine. But he's here today because he's the author of a great book called Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, which I have gone on the record saying is the money ball of dating. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jean. Great to see you. It's really nice to see you, too. So for those people, and I know they're not many, but for those people who haven't heard of Datanomics before, it is a book that tackles the real problem of modern dating, and that problem is supply and demand. Yeah, it's a it's a supply and demand look at dating. Uh, occasionally, I will describe the book to my agent's dismay as the least romantic book ever written about dating. Um, And I I think it's an exaggeration. There's some romance in there. But um, it's really a by-the-numbers approach using demographics and social science to explain why the modern dating market, which is the word I use, why the dating market is the way it is. Why is it that dating seems so much harder for women, particularly for college-educated women nowadays, than it is for men? I have to tell you, I, I think it's my age, but I have a number of friends who have daughters now who are in their late 20s, getting to their 30s, still single, and the moms are pulling their hair out. It's always the moms, right? I mean, I I think the daughters are actually fine, which I keep telling them, but because my daughter's still in college, I personally, I mean, I want her to be happy, but if she's studying instead of dating, that is just fine with me. But I do think it's time to acknowledge this man deficit is a real thing. Yeah, I I happened to interview my, my rabbi for the book, and he told me that basically not... Not a week, sometimes not a day goes by where he doesn't have a mother asking him, do you know any nice boys for my daughter? And he told me he's never once had a mother's mother ask him, do you know any nice girls for my son? Never once. Never once. I have asked that question. My son is is 22, so he is 
you know, of the age where he could be. Maybe at. you just don't like the quality of girls that he's. Uh... <laughs> no, I think you know what I think. It's just that I don't have the information. Uh, I think I think he's probably dating, and I just don't know. Oh yeah, my kids don't tell me anything. So there you go. Assuming that your kids are talking to you or that you're listening and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I would like to meet somebody. Let's talk about the different ways that you can improve your odds. Well, the fundamental problem with dating nowadays, particularly for college-educated people, is that there's essentially one-third more college-grad women than college-grad men. And so women have just been graduating from college at a higher rate. And this might not matter so much uh, if we were all more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry. But the trend has been towards what academics call assortative mating, which is a fancy way of just saying that that people like to college grads tend to want to date and marry other college grads. So we but ha- we don't want to date and marry them when we're in college. No, no. But, but, but we, we tend to seek out, when we're ready for dating and marriage, we tend to seek out similar people. And I actually think online dating makes this worse. How because, does it make it worse? Because there's so much box checking. You know, you're, um, it, the children of suburbia don't think twice about seeking out somebody with a college degree. Um, or, there are, you know, that you're looking, well, I, I like oceans. I need an ocean person. I'm a dog person. I'm a cat person. And what you end up doing is checking off boxes that really just... Just describe who you are and don't really describe who you might click with. And I think, you know, in the pre-internet era, you could meet somebody at church or at work and that person might not check off all your boxes, but you hit it off so it doesn't matter. And I think kind of the internet world, you never end up seeing the dating profiles of people you otherwise might connect with. Have you found that younger people today also have a more difficult time talking in person? I do think, uh, yes, the the short answer is yes, but I think part of the problem is that the gender roles in dating aren't what they used to be. So when we were younger in dating, or certainly when our parents were younger in dating, um, the expectation was that the guy would make the first move, and the guy would initiate the conversation, and things would flow from there. But we're in this kind of in-between world in which a lot of guys, not all guys, but a lot of guys are gun-shy. They're uncomfortable. They don't want to be perceived as too pushy or aggressive. Um, Nobody wants to be accused of harassment. Um, Last night I did a dating event uh, in the city called The Great Love Debate. It's kind of a comedy show. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a role-playing bit involved in which, you know, they Brian, the the host, plucks two people from the audience, and the guy needs to pick up the girl. And they're supposed to be in line at Starbucks. And in this scenario, the guy touched the woman's back. And in the postmortem, there was a lot of conversation about whether the touching was okay. And there were some women who liked it, some who hated it. But the majority of women, um, in talking about it, they're their take on whether or not that the touching was okay depended entirely on their first impression of the guy. Uh, so if they were, if they liked the guy, then the touching was fine, right? But the guys don't know that, and I think in general the guys, the guys don't know if they're attractive enough or charming enough to pass, you know, the, the touch test or, or any kind of. 
Yeah, I just think guys in general are less assertive. And, and I think this leads to kind of a lot of initial awkwardness in dating because the women expect the guys to be take charge. A lot of guys are, are kind of gun shy about it. So you end up with kind of amorphous introductions and eventually kind of amorphous relationships in which there's nobody taking charge and nobody can you know, has really defined what the relationship is. Or you don't even know if it's a relationship exactly. at all. The, yeah. there, there was a modern love column a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times about a woman who had a thing for the baker who made bread at her local bakery. I don't know if you read this, but she was pushing herself and pushing herself and pushing herself to, you know, ask the guy if they could hang out. And by the time she finally got around to it, the guy had gotten so used to seeing her as a customer it was really awkward. And so I say that because I think it's awkward for women, too. Nobody likes risking rejection. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, making the first move is awkward for women. It's awkward for men. But part of my message is that I think women need to be more willing to do that. Um, you know, women, to steal a line from Sheryl Sandberg, w- women need to lean in with relationships the same way they do with careers. And I think part of it is that the, the guys just aren't as take charge as they used to be. So, the women kind of need to fill the void a little bit because the guys, there are two things going on with the guys. One, they've just been conditioned to be more passive and less take charge. Two, and this is just as important, in a dating market with one-third more women than men, at least among millennial college grads, the guys don't have to be take charge because there's this never-ending supply of fabulous women. So they don't need to be as assertive as they used to be. Um, so I think it behooves the women to be to be assertive themselves. Let's talk about different specific ways we can up our odds. So if we're out there and we're thinking about, yes, I would like to meet somebody, what three or four specific things would you tell women to do? Well, the number one thing, and I do get a lot of pushback from women on this, is to expand your dating pool to include blue-collar guys. Um, you know, I do not believe a college degree makes you a better wife or a better husband. I also, I mean, I think there's this assumption out there that every blue-collar guy, um, you know, is poor or not intelligent, and that's not the case. I mean, the, you know, I, I think of, like, Aiden from Sex and the City. We like, all think of Aiden right, exactly. from Sex and the City. Right. You know, and also, I mean, Given how much I paid my plumber last year, I guarantee he makes more than I do. So th- there are lots of tradesmen out there, firefighters, cops, who I Chefs. think— Chefs. Sh- exactly. Bakers. Yes. I I had the biggest crush on a baker when I was a young freelance writer in New York many, many, many years ago. I had done a story for Manhattan Inc. magazine, which doesn't exist, and I got to meet this guy. And he was—I mean, there's something about a guy who works with his hands that's that's kind of sexy. For me, the biggest thing is to push everyone to be more open-minded when it comes to dating and not not limit yourself to, particularly for women, to college grad men, because it not only— makes your odds better, but it kind of takes away some of the leverage that the college grad men now have, because I think a lot of those educated white-collar guys are kind of empowered to act badly because they know they're in demand. Okay, so we expand our horizon, but you also think we should expand it geographically. Well, 
this is the kind of advice I'd like to give young women. Like I'm not, I don't expect a 40 year old woman with a whole life and a career and set of friends in Washington, DC. I don't expect her to pick up her life and move to San Jose, California, just because the, the dating odds are better out there. However, if you just graduated from college and you're starting out and you kind of have an open slate in terms of where you could work or where you could end up. Yeah, I think, and if, if marriage is important to you, and I don't assume it's important to everyone, but if marriage is a high priority, yeah, there are parts of the country where the dating math is better for educated women. Number one on the list would be Silicon Valley, so San Jose, California. Um, it's the one part of the country where the the demographics, where supply and demand is reversed, where there's one-third more college grad men than college grad women, at least among singles. So San Jose, California, Seattle, uh, Denver, also known as Menver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've um, never heard that before. Uh, yeah, th- there are cities like that, particularly cities that have a big tech um, industry. Even like I think like Columbus, Ohio has a pretty big tech sector, and you could find little pockets of, you know, within. It's not just the West Coast. You can find areas that that have a big tech industry and tend to draw more men because. For better or for worse, men are more likely to have those engineering jobs or computer science jobs. Well, does the same hold true of companies within your own market? So, for example, if I'm a lawyer um, and I'm looking for a new job, am I better off if I'm looking to meet men going and working as a lawyer or a paralegal in a high-tech company? The answer is yes, but I think I would get chewed out if I made that argument as a man. I know that there are lots of people who do put a super high priority on marriage, and I don't think it's unreasonable to choose a job or choose a company or choose a location to improve your dating odds. But then again, somehow or other, whenever I say that, it sounds like I'm telling women to choose their job based on, on where the guys are. And I, 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 you know, my wife doesn't like that. So. Okay. Well, we, <laughs> we'll take it from her. Before we keep going with this fascinating conversation, I just want to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Fidelity. Her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with John Berger. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be with John Berger on this week before Valentine's Day. John is the author of Datanomics. What's your take on paying for matchmaking services? It's really expensive. The reality is I know a lot of matchmakers these days, and I did not back when I covered oil and gas or, or stocks and bonds. <laughs> but I, I happen to know, know a lot of matchmakers. And you know, I know some that are great and are probably worth every penny, but the business isn't regulated. It's hard to know who's a charlatan and who is top of their field. So I'm a little torn about what to tell people generally because matchmakers can charge ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year, sometimes more than that. And uh, that's a lot of money if you hired the wrong matchmaker. So I think there are lots of good ones out there. I just don't want to make a blanket endorsement because there are lots of bad ones, too. And do you have any sense of the dating websites and the apps that you pay for versus the ones that you don't? And I'm thinking in particular, there's an eHarmony ad running right now. And 
the woman in the ad makes the point that she likes the fact that she paid for being a member of this. And it made me think of financial planning services, actually, that there is an argument that if you pay for a financial advisor, you're more likely to actually follow the advice. Yeah, no, there is a difference um, with the dating sites and dating apps, depending upon whether you pay for them. And it's not a simple conclusion, but the reality is that the sites that are free, like OkCupid or Plenty of Fish or Tinder, uh, for the most part, the sites that are free tend to have more men than women. So... The good news is, if you're a woman, there's more fish in the sea, literally. The problem is that the free sites also tend to, the men it attracts tend to be, let's just say, those who are less looking for a long-term relationship and maybe looking for something more short-term. As you go down the other end of the scale, the sites like eHarmony that, that charge a, you know, a not insignificant amount of money, they tend to have more women than men. But the men are more commitment-minded. So, like, a, a guy isn't going to answer eHarmony's 200 questions and fork out, what is it, 40 bucks a month if all he's looking for is a fling, right? So the guys there are probably more marriage material. The problem, though, is that the the ratio isn't as good. There tends to be more women than men on the pay sites. It's so interesting to talk about the supply and demand of people. I mean, I guess that's what the labor market is. Does it vary based on age? I mean, when you're in college, for example, is the availability of a mate something that you should be thinking about when you choose a school? I would say yes. And in my book, Datanomics, I do this analysis of 35 major public and private universities. I rank them by their sex ratio, uh, by the ratio of men to women at the school. And then I pair those rankings with students' own descriptions of dating life at those schools. So, and I got the descriptions courtesy of Niche.com, which is a student-authored college review site basically geared towards kids applying to school. You know, if you want to know what the cafeteria food is like or what the dating scene is like, you can go to Niche and they will clue you in. But what I found is that the schools that were disproportionately female, 60% female or more, um, and the average these days is 57% female, but the schools that were disproportionately female tended to have the wildest hookup cultures. So Boston University, which I think is 61% female, I think the comment on Niche.com was something to the effect of freshman year is a sexual explosion. There are girls to go around and around again. Wow. Whereas That's not something that any mother wants to hear. Exactly. Uh, whereas the schools like Georgia Tech, uh, which is, I think, 65% male in, in Atlanta, uh, I think the, the, the comment there was that people at Georgia Tech like to be in a relationship, which doesn't surprise me because all the research on this shows that when men are in oversupply, as they are at Georgia Tech, the whole culture is more monogamous. But when women are in oversupply, the culture is looser and less monogamous. While we're talking about monogamy, let's talk about the ultimate monogamy or what's supposed to be the ultimate monogamy, you know, if women are the ones who are supposed to be pursuing now and and being a little more forward, should women be proposing? Yes. Um, I mean, not all women, but I think there was a study out of the UK a couple years ago, which indicated that 75% of boyfriends would say yes if their girlfriend proposed. And I think that proportion is pretty close to the proposal acceptance rate among women. I mean, it's, it's in the same ballpark. And I think what women sometimes 
miss when it comes to dating is guys like women who like them. <laughs> I think that's so true. Uh, and 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 I think sometimes women will tell each other that well you'll spook him or you'll scare him off. You don't want to seem too this or too desperate. But I'm telling you, there's never been a guy who said, "Oh, I like Susie a lot, but she's way too enthusiastic about me." I mean, that like that that doesn't happen. And I think guys appreciate women who make it clear that they like them. And I think guys react well to that. So yes, I'm a big fan of of marriage ultimatums. Um, I mean, if you've been dating some guy for two years, I don't think you're going to learn anything in year three that you didn't already know in year two or year one. And I, th- I think, you know, if marriage is a high priority for you, I think, you know, it's it, it makes sense to push the issue. And are you a big fan of marriage or at least being partnered from an economic standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I, and you know this better than I do. That that all the research on this indicates that being married is a more economical way of living than than being single. I mean, there's economies of scale just with cooking, right? Um, and with you know car sharing and home sharing. I mean, there. That's not why we get married, or usually, or it's not the main reason we get married. But it is more economical uh, to be married, and more importantly, it's really expensive to be single, right? I mean, yeah. the, the the amount of money that my single friends, particularly my single female friends, spend on staying attractive to the opposite sex, I mean, I, I it's mind-blowing to me, you know, between the beauty treatments and, and the clothing and the like. You know, we could just talk about the cost of being a woman because it's, <laughs> it's, it is not cheap. John Berger, thank you. Um, thank you, Jean. Thank you for, for being our Valentine's Day guest, and we look forward to having you back again. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you to you, too. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Well, that was fun. Such an interesting conversation. John's work on dating is some of my favorite. So what do you think? I mean, I think everybody here knows you've had a birthday. Mm -hmm. You are 26 years old. Yes. You are off the health plan of your parents and on to independence and single in New York City. Single in New York City. And... Some work I did in college on sex ratios, which is a huge premise for his research, didn't make me too optimistic to move here. And his research pans out. What he says is is pretty spot on, especially when it comes to dating culture and how it's affecting, I think, the rate of commitment or the level of commitment of people you see and people you meet. Does it make you, now that you're in a city where the ratios are skewed not in your favor, do something different? Not right now, because as you know, I am not itching to find someone to marry tomorrow or, you know, it's it's not right now I'm married to my career and that's my focus. And we appreciate it. Yes. But <laughs> I, I have to be honest, though, if I, you know, I do get that that moment where I'm like, oh, my goodness, I want a relationship. I want to settle down. I, I have to see how strongly I feel, but I'm not opposed to maybe making a move because I'm also just, I'm, I, I'm mobile, period. Right. Right? So if I have a great offer come my way and it's not here, I don't know. 
To be determined. To be determined down the road, preferably. All right. We have questions coming in from Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and email. What you got? We have our first question from Will on Twitter, at cuckoo for you tweeted, do you have any knowledge on using credit cards to pay for a mortgage for reward purposes than paying it off every month? It is really, really hard to do. However... I would like to point you back to our podcast where our guest was Trent Swanson. He is married to Darren Kagan, who used to be a CNN anchor and now has a website about good news. And he has done this, and he talked about it on the show. So go back, give it a listen. Otherwise, I have tried, and I was actually talking to somebody this week Because college tuition is another one. You would think if you could pay college tuition on a credit card, you would be able to get a slew of points, but they make it very difficult because of fees. However, it appears some state schools, some public universities make it easier. Hmm. Okay. My next question is from Lindsay. She sent us an email. She writes, my husband and I don't have enough money to use a standard financial planner, especially since we live in a very affluent area, but enough that we need to have a plan with it. How can very moderate earners get financial planning help? So there are a couple of things that I would suggest, and I think it's a wonderful question because financial planning services have actually become a lot more democratic lately. You don't have to have somebody on the payroll for the long term or to hire a wealth manager where they take 1% to 2% of your assets under management in order to work for you. First place I would point people is to the Garrett Planning Network. Garrett Planning is a network of fee-only financial advisors, but they're willing to operate by the hour. And so you can hire a planner for a few hours to look over the plan that you did yourself and basically say, yeah, fix this, tweak that, and you'll be good to go. You do that maybe once a year. That's a very fine way to get your planning done. I would also say that the large mutual fund houses, investment companies, Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe, they have in-house planners. And they charge a variety of fees for getting a plan done. Some don't charge any fees at all. They'll, they'll do a plan for you simply because you're a client. But you should look into those as well. And finally, I would say there is a ton of information out there on the internet. You know, it is very possible to DIY it these days. But I do appreciate the urge to have somebody at least look it over. And so if you... Find a planner that comes highly recommended in your area and you want to meet with them, but you know that you don't have the necessary assets to qualify for the minimum. I'd say pick up the phone, make a call, ask if you could pay for an hour or two of his or her time and see where it takes you. What's the difference between a planner and an advisor? Is there a difference or can we use those interchangeably? We use them pretty much interchangeably, although there is a credential the CFP, which stands for Certified Financial Planner, and the people who have it jump through considerable hoops and take a big exam in order to get it. And then I remember you wrote a column on kind of dating for like how to date and find a right 
planner advisor for you. And one of your pieces of advice is that when you do meet or you're shopping for a planner advisor is to make sure that the majority of the conversation is about you, right? Do you remember the one I'm talking about? I do. And it should be as much listening as talking from the advisor that you're talking to. And that's because this should not be a cookie cutter solution. It shouldn't be that everybody who walks into a planner's office gets squeezed into plan A, B, C, or D. It should be, let's figure out what you want and how we craft a path for you to get from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. And we can put together all the necessary steps in order to get you there. But unless the planner asks questions about where you want to go and when you want to go and how much risk you're able to take without being unable to sleep at night, crafting that individualized plan that you're paying for is largely impossible. On today's Thrive segment, as we have been talking about all show Valentine's Day, it's just around the corner, and the average person celebrating will drop roughly $145, ouch, according to the National Retail Federation. But if you're looking to save money, I have another idea, and no, I am not talking about quality time between the sheets, although that does rank second on the list of things deal site Retail Me Not found recipients expect to get from their significant others, dinner by the way, was first. I'm talking about conversation. Six out of 10 millionaires fully disclose details of their financial lives before moving in together or getting married, according to a recent survey from PNC. And 93% of them said those conversations were helpful in crafting a life together. If you think a romantic conversation about money is impossible, think again. Talk about what you see yourselves doing now, one, three, five, and ten years down the road. And then talk about how you're going to make those dreams a reality. Do all of those things with your favorite bottle of red, and you're good to go. I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Her Money. Thank you to John Berger for a terrific conversation. And thank you for all of your questions. Coming up next week on Her Money, we'll have Kathy Murphy, president of Fidelity, whose support we value and continue to be grateful for each and every week. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We'd also like to, once again, thank that sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.